Welcome to Voices from the Front Lines. Wake up and smell the revolution. This is Channing Martinez, your co-host and producer of Voices. Today on the show, we plan to have three significant segments. The first, obviously, is we want to unpack and talk about this recent Supreme Court decision to end affirmative action federally. And Eric will have a dialogue about that discussion, and I'll respond to that. In the second section, we want to give an update on what is the status of black students, the Black Student Achievement Program, and the trajectory of our campaign in the LAUSD schools to end anti-black colonial education practices and policies. And as you know, the third section, because it's the 4th of July, unfortunately the celebration of fascism in the United States, the celebration of creating a genocidal white settler state and attempting to fully get rid of black people, fully get rid of indigenous people. We want to play Frederick Douglass's What to the Slave is the 4th of July. We want to hear from you at Voices from the Front Lines. Please email us either at eric at voicesfromthefrontlines.com or channing at voicesfromthefrontlines.com. As you'll see, we're no longer in FunDrive, but KPFK still needs your support. I encourage you to call 818-985-5735 to support KPFK and to support Voices from the Frontlines Radio. As always, you can hear all of our past shows on our website, and you can find our podcast on just about every streaming podcast site that you use. Just search Voices from the Front Lines. With that, let's hear from Eric. So, hi, Voices listeners. I'm so glad you're out there. This is Eric Mann. Uh, I know you know as the host of Voices, but I think a lot of you know uh, a, a former secretary with the Congress of Racial Equality, 64 to 65, and then I worked in Newark in the Black community from 1965 to 67 with the Newark Community Union Project. So at that point in history, um, the Civil Rights Act had been passed in the summer of 64. Uh, I began work with CORE in, in the September of 64. The Voting Rights Act was passed in the summer of 65. Um, we never thought that the law was going to protect us very much. We had a legal department, but we thought the way to win affirmative action, because we thought black people deserved a lot as a form of reparations, we didn't use the term affirmative action. We just said freedom now. Stop your racism, hire black people now. Um, I'm overwhelmed by the recent Supreme Court decision overturning that Harvard and 
the University of North Carolina can no longer use any racial categories, specifically black, to give any form of uh, uh, what do you call it? any form of credit to an application because of that. See, it's not a benefit. It's not a a uh, concession. It should be an honor to be black, and it should be a great accomplishment, not simply for diversity, and not simply to overcome 500 years of racial segregation. It, it should be because black people are smarter than white people, and black people are superior to white people, and white people are inherently inferior. And I mean that. I'm going to get to that. But I'm going to spend a little time on that because you're going to get into the law of why black people can't get in and anymore based on you know any benefit of being black. The theory now is under the 14th Amendment, which says equality, right? It says the equal protection law. It says blacks and whites must be treated equal. But the problem with any law is it's just a bunch of words. It can be used for whatever you want to. So in Brown versus Board of Education, they overturned Plessy versus Ferguson, in which Plessy versus Ferguson in about, in about the 1890s said, separate and equal meets the criteria of the 14th Amendment, which simply said equality. Now, if you go back and do legal scholarship, you find out that when they were writing the 14th Amendment, the more radical Republicans said, not just e equal protection of law, but you cannot discriminate against people based on race. And that was not in the 14th Amendment. It was kicked out. So most of the laws never said the United States has done grave danger and endangered and imposed enormous suffering on the black population. In order to compensate for that, a.k.a. reparations, for the next hundred years, all the positions of the universities should go to black people. For the next hundred years, all the jobs should go to black people. They didn't say that. They didn't say for the next hundred years, black people should get benefits in any way because of racial discrimination. They simply said equality. Now, in 1954, Thurgood Marshall argued in front of the Supreme Court in Brown versus Board of Education that separate and equal is inherently unequal. So what he meant by that was you can't have white schools and black schools and really pretend they're equal. And he pointed out all the way that the black schools were not equal. He even dealt with the psychology of black children thinking that white people were more attractive. He did this doll study of the black child with the black doll and the white doll. So the punchline of Brown was separate and unequal is not equal, and therefore separate and unequal must be eliminated, and you can't segregate the school. Never said separate and unequal is racist, 
separate or unequal is anti-black, and therefore penalties must be imposed on the whites. So what the Supreme Court now is doing now is hiding behind, well, the 14th Amendment simply says equality, and the white people are coming in since Alan Bakke, who said, I'm discriminated against because I'm white, and since the, the 14th Amendment says you cannot discriminate based on race, I was discriminated against because I'm a white guy and my grades were better than some people who got to the University of Davis Medical School. And so the only way they got in was because they were black. And therefore, I should get in. And he got in and overturned some of the affirmative action programs. So since that time, which was in the 70s, they've cut away at it, cut away at it, cut away with it. And they finally have eliminated it. Now, there's a phenomenal dissent on the part of Chief uh, Justice Sotomayor. As she said, the University of North Carolina is not alone. Harvard, like other Ivy League universities in our country, stood behind church and state as the third pillar of a civilization based on bondage. From Harvard's founding, slavery and racial subordination were integral parts of the institution's funding, intellectual production, and campus life. Harvard and its donors had extensive financial ties to and profited from the slave trade, the labor of enslaved people, and slavery-related in investments. As Harvard now recognizes, the accumulated wealth was vital to the university's growth and established as an elite national institution. Today, benefactors with ties to slavery and white supremacy continue to be memorialized across campus at Harvard through statues, buildings, professorships, student houses, and the like. She goes on. Now, these may be uncomfortable truths, but they are truths nonetheless. Institutions can and do change. However, societal and legal changes force them to live up to their highest ideal. It is against this historical background that Harvard and UNC have reckoned with their past and its lingering effect, acknowledging the reality that race has always mattered and continues to matter these universities have established institutional goals of diversity and inclusion, consistent with equal protection principles and this court settled law. Their policies use race in a limited way with the goal of recruiting, admitting, and enrolling underrepresented racial minorities to pursue the well-documented benefits of racial integration. The court today stands in the way of respondents, commendable undertaking and entrenches racial inequality in higher education. The majority opinion does so by turning a blind eye to these truths and overruling decades of precedent, content for now to disguise its ruling as an application of established law and move on. It is disturbing, this is Sotomayor, feature of today's decision that the court does not even attempt to make the extraordinary showing required by state Stare decisis, the court simply moves the goalposts, moves the goalposts, 
upsetting settled expectations and throwing admissions program nationwide into turmoil. In the end, however, it's clear why the court is forced to change the rules of the game to reach its desired outcome. Under a faithful application of the court's settled legal framework, Harvard and UNC admissions program are constitutional and comply with Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. Okay, so what does this mean? Moving the goalposts, getting away from settled law. And I'm going to come up with a few conclusions. Why do we believe in these courts anyway? I mean, if you appoint six fascists to the Supreme Court, which they've done, what do you expect the six courts to do? They had a predetermined outcome. They overturned Roe versus Wade. They've overturned the Voting Rights Act. They've overturned the right of civil rights groups to bring it under the Civil Rights Act. Now they've overturned affirmative action. Now I'm going to read the whole thing to just understand better the lies of the, you know, the six henchmen. But I want to get to what to do about it, because that's what Voices is about. And, and I need a lot of thinking about it. But here are some original thoughts. First, Harvard and the University of North Carolina can and should just simply commit civil disobedience. It's an unjust law. We're not going to follow it. In fact, we're going to admit more black people. Take us to court. What are you going to do to us? Put us in prison. Take away our accreditation. Take away our federal funds. So what? Let Harvard take on the Supreme Court, University of North Carolina. Why don't they declare themselves as HBCUs and just say, we just want all black students? Why doesn't some university just say, well, I, you know, you can change it as follows. And I'm serious. We think that uh, black studies, black art, black history, black theory, black experience is the major of Harvard University. And everyone, regardless of race, who's written lots of papers on black experience, been in black groups, fought for black causes, is equally, equally under the 14th Amendment, equally able to come to Harvard. Because just as the courts moved the goalposts into a ridiculous new law, Harvard could say, okay, we moved the, the curriculum. You can't get into medical school if you're not pre-med. You can't get into Harvard unless you're pre-black. What do you do about it? It's not fair. No, it's fair. Anybody who wants to can study black studies at Harvard, but you have to have a whole history of studying it. And please submit all your papers on black studies from University of Cracker, and we'll look at them. When I'm get and the third thing we can do is say that the movement has always been based not just on civil disobedience, but never believing the law is our friend, let alone our savior. You know, we boycotted stores, say don't hire black people, and they hired black people. We have to figure out how to cause harm to any university that goes along with this. This is my first thought. They must pay. In other words, Harvard has a choice. I know that Harvard is going to try to figure out another way to get this done. I do know that. But there's got to be pressure on Harvard, pressure on the University of North Carolina. Look, there should be pressure on U.S. 
UCLA that has three, four, five percent of black students, and black students are eight percent of the city and should be sixteen or twenty percent. So UCLA is violating the Fourteenth Amendment of the Constitution. What I'm getting to is this is one of my, I guess, when you call it early brainstorm commentary. I think we should march on UCLA and shut it down until they hire all the black students. We are having a fight, you'll hear from Jenny Martinez, about our efforts to stop the anti-blackness in the public schools. So it's pretty funny, you know, equal protection of law. So the public schools make sure that the black children have difficulty reading performance-wise. They have difficulty in math. They're the racist. The children are the victims, but then go ahead and apply to Harvard and you can't get any credit for being black. So you're gonna have to get it on your grade. And for any black student to have good grades is a miracle. So let me conclude by saying this. I'm working on a book. It actually is gonna get finished this year. It's called, I Saw a Revolution with My Own Eyes. History, strategy, and organizing for the revolution we need today. It tells a long story. The revolution I saw with my own eyes began in Haiti in 1792. It began in the Soviet Union in 1917. I saw it with my own eyes as a reader, as an empathizer. But I also saw it beginning in 1942 when I was born up until the present. And from 1942 to 1980, there was a great revolution all over the world, a third world revolution. Black people had gone to the war. They sent to Europe and they saw in certain parts of Europe they were treated pretty well. And they came back to the United States with guns and consciousness. The Soviet Union was very powerful and the United States was very frightened by the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union was saying, you're a racist, you're a racist. The United States said, no, we're not, no, we're not. So that's why you had Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, cover our eyes on race. Then they had the war in Vietnam and black people stood up against the war in Vietnam. We saw black people as the leading intellectuals of our time. I mean, Martin Luther King was not, he was a PhD, one of the most brilliant men, not one of the most, just one of the most brilliant black men. But if you ask anybody who was thinking in the 60s, anybody, white, Asian, Latin American, Latino, Chicano, indigenous black, who were the people you read? James Baldwin, Richard Wright, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Franz Fanon. You ask anybody who is the most advanced thinker, Muhammad Ali. So we pushed this white settler, imperialist, genocidal, misogynistic state as far as it could. And if you can picture it like a, like a crocodile, we forced open its jaws, forced it open. We put sticks in it of the white settler state crocodile. And in there, we won the EPA, we won the Voting Rights Act, we won some improvement in black people's lives. Well, in 1980, Ronald Reagan was elected, who said enough of this. We got to get rid of these welfare queens. We got a black woman driving a Cadillac. 
the anti-blackness came back. The Democratic Party lost interest. The white people lost interest. And the jaws of the crocodile have snapped right back on us. And now we've lost Roe versus Wade. We've lost voting rights. We've lost civil rights. And we've lost affirmative action. I think it makes no sense right now to try to keep amending laws to get Roe versus Wade back and trying new laws to get civil rights. I'm not saying it shouldn't be done, but we have to have a national network of abortion clinics surrounded by guns that say we have the right to, to safe and free abortion and we're taking it. I think we have black people marching on Harvard and saying, I've been down the front row and I'm taking the class. See, that's what I was taught at core, that when you say you put your body on the line, it means white castles don't want to hire black people. Okay, black people go and FF white castles so bad that nobody can come. And then the whites beat up the blacks, and the blacks beat up the whites, and white castles close down. And after enough white castles close down for a week or a month, they come up to core and say, hey, all right, all right, we're going to start hiring black folks. And we say, how many, how fast? And they say, 27 in one month. And we say, okay. That was affirmative action. We took affirmative action. It wasn't a law. It was nonviolent direct action, militant direct action. Now, affirmative action is a good concept. It is. It says we must take affirmative action to overturn the racism that we've done in the past, which is what... Justice Sotomayor said, you, she said to UNC and Harvard, you have a disgusting history, a, a, a history that is, is filled with the stench of racism. And the fact that you're finally doing something now is nothing to be given a big award about. And yet the Supreme Court says you cannot ever do anything positive for black people. You never suffered for 300 years of hurting black people, building Harvard on slavery. But now you're doing the slightest thing to help black people, and you're, you're going to be full illegal. So I think that we in the movement need to have a series of fora, conversations, articles about what do we do about the white settler state counter-revolution against black people, which is happening in the, in the schools. But I want to give you some good news. The system has not yet completely given up on affirmative action. If you want to be houseless, you're going to get prefer preferential treatment. You're going to get, you know, 30, 40%. You could be houseless. If you want to get beat up by the police, they're going to give you affirmative action. You get 50, 60% of the people on the train. So there is affirmative action. Don't feel so bad about it. You know, for anything that the system wants to do bad to you, they will give you affirmative action. They'll give you preferential treatment over the white folks. Now, the National Leadership School for Strategic Organizing is spending this year rebuilding a curriculum. We're looking into educational programs. We're looking at the whole history of black people. We're looking at the definitions of genocide. We're working closely with Students Deserve, with Community Coalition, with Inner City Struggle, with Black Lives Matter, UTLA. The central question facing the United States right now is anti-black, anti-indigenous, anti-third world uh, activity. 
And I think for those of you who go to law school, I think you should have second thoughts. I really do. Certainly not if you're going to do constitutional law and think you're going to walk into some courtroom and win equality for folks. Because the laws are created by the oppressor. And the oppressor is writing the laws to say that affirmative action is no longer legal. So let's make it illegal. That's all. Make it just, that's what civil disobedience means. So what if it's illegal? We're going to do it anyway. Yeah, Janet. You had this great formulation for the veterans, which I think applies here, which you wrote this great article and the title was Veterans, Your Only Friend is the Anti-War Movement. And I feel like that same frame offers here in that, you know, here, affirmative action has been illegal in California. It's been illegal for years and the movement has continued fighting. And so it's almost to say that in the vein that we're creating a national leadership school for strategic organizing, and we're trying to build alternative institutions, then the phrase gets to say that uh, potential lawyers, your only real friend is the black liberation movement that we're building around the country with the strategy center, with students deserve, with Black Lives Matter, with all the groups that we're working with. Not that we're perfect. I don't know that we have the full solution, but at least when you come to the National Leadership School for Strategic Organizing, we do believe in affirmative action. We plan to hire, have Black applicants and prioritize Black applicants. And we need folks that are on the level of Harvard that know how to study case law and know how to study populations and know how to really understand what this institution of the United States is doing in order to be able to take it on. You know, Channing, what you're saying that, you know, my wife, Leanne, uses the term affiliated intellectuals. So I am taking back a little what I said. You know, we do need lawyers. That's wrong. We need lawyers to get Keith Lamar off death row. We need lawyers to protect all the political prisoners in the sit in the system. But you got to be part of the movement. You know, that's the thing. You got to figure out what are your best moves. And I'm not even saying there aren't constitutional possibilities. But I want to end with another thought that I really mean. And it's, I'll say it again, but I think we want to change the term white supremacy to white inferiority because I think that the core question here is by any uh, objective standard, white people are inferior to black people. Um, and I mean, it can be proven. I mean, if you look at even uh, uh, natural selection by Darwin, I mean, if the slaves did all the work and the white people sat and drank mint, mint juleps, then eventually, first their bodies dis disintegrated, then their minds disintegrated, then their conscience, they were savages, they were barbarians, the slaves weren't. Look today at the strategy center. You know, we hire almost all black people, but we also hire black people because they're the smartest people. I mean that. They're most creative people. I mean, look in jazz, look in dance, look in any field. And who are the best people? And who are not the best? You know, white people can't jump. White people can't do anything. And they're the one who are afraid of affirmative action because how do you think they have gotten there? They get into school by being stupid. 
but by being in the schools that boost their class, uh, we call it their grades, living in rich families, getting tutors, all the psychiatric privileges of being white where you're really just two years old, you must say, she's so smart. You're so smart, and you're going to be a lawyer someday. And the black child is goes out in the street and gets beat up by a cop when they're six. So that's another thought I just want to say. I want to be clear that I want to rewrite on that, that I think we've got to stop saying supremacy and start saying the problem with this is white inferiority. You know, white people were born on third base and they can't get home. And black people were born in the, in the dugout or on the plantation and they hit the home run. They run right past the white guy who was stayed on, born on third base and can't get off third base. Don't think that these white people in the South who are on crack cocaine and crystal meth and are still voting for Donald Trump, they got no job. The hatred of black people is so severe that it runs all the way through our legal system. So I'm just thinking out loud, but I'm pretty outraged that the concept we're going to do one more thing, Jenny. You know, I know a lot of, when affirmative action came out, I know a lot of people said, I hate it. I said, why? They said, because when you get a job, they said, not because it's affirmative action. Otherwise, they didn't want, you know, they would tell the white, the white would say, well, why didn't you get the job? I'm sorry. I had to hire some of these affirmative action people. So the white guy can go home when a white woman goes home to the house and says, Steve, I was smarter than that black person. But I didn't get it because of that damn affirmative action. So in conclusion, this is just the very beginning of a long conversation. The Strategy Center goes to meetings all over the country. Now I think we got to do more. we got to go to more conferences, listen, study more. And the other thing the Strategy Center does is we have what's called an organizer's exchange. And we bring a small number of people to come together and brainstorm. And I think we got to do, Channing, some two- and three-day organizer exchanges about the state of Black America right now. What are we going to do about it? And I really mean, I want to thank, you know, by name, not just by, by Channing Martinez and Barbara Lahan and Akuna Oka and myself from the Strategy Center and uh, Kristen Flagg from Community Coalition and Mr. Williams from Students Deserve. Dan Williams from UTLA and also Black Lives Matter and uh, others you could mention, because these are real people going in every day to try to address the racism in our public schools. And that's where I see the greatest hope. So maybe we could take a break and then Channing is going to tell the other side of it, which is the more optimistic side, because we haven't had affirmative action in the, <laughs> in the LA schools ever. And maybe you could talk about all the work you're doing to try to address the full totality of anti-blackness. And one more thing, um, you know, this is the 4th of July, and we wanted to do a program on the 4th of July. And of course, everyone knows Frederick Douglass's great oration, What to the Slave is the 4th of July. And Fanning found a terrific five or six minute clip of James Earl Jones some of the more scathing passages and how sad it is that we're on the 4th of July 2023 at the end of affirmative action.
Welcome back to Voices from the Front Lines. That was Say It Loud uh, by Salam Remy and CeeLo Green. The conversation we're having is about the recent decision by the Supreme Court to basically outlaw affirmative action federally. Um, and the conversation we are about to have are twofold. Number one, we want to talk about Frederick Douglass's speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July. Um, and then uh, also I want to speak about some updates on what's going on in the LUSD with the Black Student Achievement Program, what's going on with Black students, and what is the long-term trajectory of this campaign of which uh, we are calling at least billions for Black students and ending the anti-Black uh, colonial education policies in LUSD and how strategy and soul fits into that. So at the LUSD, we have just recently had a pretty big breakthrough, but we've also had some really big challenges. And I feel like I want to go back for a moment just to say a sentence or two of where we've been and then update on where it's going, which is that in 2020, we defunded the LA school police by uh, 35%, $25 million. That money then, uh, about six months after that, went into a program which we wrote over the winter break called the Black Student Achievement Program. And we wrote a whole definition of what Black student achievement means beyond academics, but speaking about the social emotional well-being of Black students and the whole Black family and so many more things. We organized more and then we got $100 million um, spent uh, to be invested into the Black Student Achievement Program. And we have spent the last two and a half years implementing this program with a lot of struggle, but with a lot of breakthroughs. Um, now that brings me to the present. The moment we are in is it's been two years, uh, two and a half years, really. And part of the hundred million dollars has been has been set aside for what we're calling community-based safety pilot programs. And that's supposed to be $15 million each year. Um, the district hasn't spent any money. Um, in fact, we just found out that the six programs that did got, get approved finally after a year and a half, uh, the money still hadn't been spent yet. And I haven't had an update since yesterday, which was the deadline to spend that money. We found out a few things, which I'll get to, but one resolution to that problem was working with board member Tanya Ortiz Franklin to say, number one, we think that there are internal manacles in the LAUSD that are preventing Black organizations from even continuing to do the work of violence prevention, of uh, safe passage, of intervention work. And so we worked with her to pass this motion that allows the district to work directly with groups to help them in their infrastructure. Um, so if you do not have the budget to have a you know billion dollar insurance policy, which the district actually requires, then the district can work with you on that, right? Um, 
if you have less than 10 employees, you're not under pressure to then provide services for the entire district. That is what this motion does, right? Um, and then it specifies that the district, you know, will provide some things that, I, to be quite honest, I think are basic, like application help for organizations who don't have administrative assistance and are trying to navigate quite honestly, a system that is from the 1970s on accepting applications to the district. So that is one. It's a big breakthrough because we've been working internally with the superintendent's office and a Black Student Achievement Program to figure out how do we get alternatives to the police. Um, many of you guys have heard me earlier this year talk about some of the crisis that's going on, which is that a lot of students are overdosing on fentanyl. Um, inside of schools. And the police are using each of those incidents to say, look, that's why we need police. That's why we need we need to be back on campus. Um, and give them credit. They're good organizers, right? Um, we're good organizers too. Um, and we're saying that we don't want you back on campus. And the district has delayed a whole two years on actually implementing an alternative because you do want them on wow. campus. Um, and so this will be the first semester coming up in which we can finally implement community-based safety alternatives. Yeah, you know, Channing, one thing we talked about, the way that the system just turns things on its head, like young people are dying of fentanyl, so let's get police. Why would you not get drug counselors? Why would you not uh, have a massive investment in public health education testing uh, for the students that are found um, using but not dead drug treatment. I mean, none of this involves the police. Then they have another one about somebody used pepper spray. All right, pepper spray. You can't solve that without a gun. So what they do is, because there's social disintegration, anytime there's social disintegration, the police have won the argument with some people that you have a headache, call a cop. You know, you whatever it is, call a cop. Uh, we are trying to win the argument. That's what's, what uh, Tanya Ortiz Franklin's bill is. Do we involve community-based safety? But what's it like for you with a small staff trying to track down a $14 billion school board? It's hard. I mean, this has been a three-year process. It took me... Uh, almost a year or nine months to fully get up to speed where I can start reading everything in real time and figuring out all of their moves. And even, you know, three years after, it's it's a regular occurrence that we get to meetings and we're figuring out they've already made 20 moves. And we're like, what? And we question them and we organize right in the moment and make an intervention um, and so it's hard because the more we struggle and the better we get, the more they struggle back. And, you know, with their, you know, something like, what, $18 billion, they're getting better themselves, right? And so this is really a runaway train, robbery train that we're trying to catch. And, you know, when we find one thing, then we find 10 other things that we've solved that we need to solve after we've solved one thing, if that makes sense. Yeah, you know, sorry, who do you want? 
You know, there's a one of my favorite uh, TV shows is a cop show called Broadchurch, and it takes place in England. And one of the good things about it is that it's got Olivia Coleman as one of the she's one of the detectives. And there's two things that happen in the show. One is that it starts out with like a young boy is murdered. In their effort to figure out what's going on, they unearth every other scandal in the damn city that's going on. No, I couldn't have been. I'll tell you why I wasn't there though, because I was on an affair with this woman in the park. Oh, okay. How how come you? I was stealing a car that night, so I couldn't. I was. So it's it's like going into the school system where each time you learn something, right? You go to look for something. Yeah. It opens up four other crises, four other scandals. Yeah, I mean, to that point, because we would we've been focusing on the community safe, uh, community based safety pilots. Right. That's how we figured out about this program, Starbase, which is the military coming in right. to then try to organize students and get them excited about Star Wars like things, only to recruit them when they graduate. We weren't looking for that. <laughs> we were looking for the community-based safety programs. And then they showed us this list and we were like, wait a minute, what the hell is this? And so we had to start a campaign within a campaign um, in order to take that on. And we won, thank goodness. Um, but yes, it's exactly- yeah, Tell them about, this is important because inside the strategy center's theory of organizing, of this idea that I came up with called the campaign within the campaign. What What's the- how do you explain that to people? Well, it doesn't mean that you are dropping your main campaign. Right. Um, and some of this gets, I guess, into military strategy or battle yeah, strategy, right? Um, but when you are on the road to your campaign, you find things and you can't just march past them and continue um acting as if you didn't see them because if you do it's going to come back and bite you right and so you have to take a break and work on that even if it means that you split the team and part of the team is working on the main structure and the other part of the team is working on what you just find and so that is what we we did is with when we found starbase the students and Eric in particular and me in particular began working on this campaign for Starbase. We sent a letter to the leaders of the Black Student Achievement uh, Steering Committee. Uh, we sent a letter to the board members. Um, all the meantime, we were still going to the LUSD board fighting for more funds for the Black Student Achievement Program. I was still going to the steering committee to speak about implementing the entire program, but we also had this campaign running alongside each other that while we're all here to try to fight for black students, we also don't want them to be recruited by the military. Yeah, if I can say that was a great definition, that is the definition that, and what you said is very good to me is that, so you're marching forward, you can't move a whole army over, but you have, you can't, as you said, you just can't march past it. Another, another example is during the anti-war demonstrations, you know, uh, we'd be marching at the university, police would come in and break our heads. And some people would stand up and say, we have to stop, don't pay attention to the police, we have to keep our eye focused on Vietnam. 
And all the people say, what are you talking about? We just got hit upside the head. This shows the police and the army are the state. We got to keep making demands on the university. But why did the university bring in the police to break our head in the demonstration? So don't say that the police distracts from the campaign. The police is a campaign within the campaign. That's, that's going to help us win the major victory. But we also got to take on the U.S. Army and we got to take on the, the police. So I thought you're, for what it's worth, you're, that's exactly the explanation. The campaign within the campaign is often based on things that come up in the middle of it. That's right. So you're not even trying to, but somebody comes to you with a problem, you know, come on, sorry, that's not the problem. So I think we're very excited that Akuna Uka, who's one of our key volunteers, is now getting a PhD in education at USC starting in September. She's working with the Strategy Center with me on curriculum development. And then she's going to be working with you, Channing, on like this constant evaluation of um, why are black students always two, three, four years behind right. in performance on math and uh, science and on English? Uh, as I've said to the school board, either they have a problem or you have a problem. And we're trying to also get into this. So I think one thing we're doing now is we're trying to go not away from the police, but beyond the police to say what is so deeply repressive about these schools, where the policing goes down to giving a kid a ticket for being late to school when they're on their way, That's or right. black or willful defiance when a child is. I really like what that young woman said. Teenagers are loud and obnoxious. When did you make this a crime? Right. I love that because it was kind of hegemonic. It wasn't like this is one of the, I think, students from Students Deserve at the last board meeting. Since saying we're so well behaved, we don't know why. You, she said, we are loud and obnoxious. That's what teenagers do. So get your hands off us. I thought that was great. So our movement has a lot of mojo. You know what I mean? It has a lot of exciting things to it. Uh, I think mean, we're winning the battle of ideas, you know, and we're very lucky. Um, Gary Gomez in particular and Tanya Ortiz Franklin, who are the two board members, and now Rocio Rivas, yeah. who seems to be. So we have three board members who clearly are standing with the students and parents on not just anti blackness, but on um, the whole repressive school system. Um, what's the biggest breakthrough lately for you? You know, you're always in leadership. What are some of the in front of your face challenges that you're trying to figure out right now? I mean, I think the biggest challenge right now is that one of our school sites, I'll just say it, Hawkins, um, they've been in a pretty repressive uh, state over the last you know, two years um, because the progressive administration was, uh, you know, fired, asked to leave. And, you know, it's hard to organize when the leadership is repressive. No one wants to challenge the leadership or they are afraid to challenge the leadership because they are running the school almost as if it's a fascist country. And so that's it. That is, that's what I'm trying to figure out.
So welcome back to Voices from the Frontlines. The conversation we were just having was uh, update and the trajectory of the Black Student Achievement Program. Of course, it's July 4th. And so you know what Voices is going to play is, is going to talk about Frederick Douglass's speech, What to the Slave is the 4th of July. Obviously, for me, I don't celebrate the 4th of July. Um, and I'm going to hand it to Eric to talk more about this talk, and then we're going to hear the actual speech. Well, um, I want, there's not much introduction. Um, in 1852, while there was slavery still going on, Frederick Douglass gave a speech called What to the Slave of the Fourth of July. There was a Corinthian Hall in Rochester, New York, and a meeting organized by the Rochester Ladies Anti-Slavery Union. And if you read the whole thing, he's got a lot of preface about your great country and blah, blah, blah. And it's, it's almost like he's setting them up, saying, well, given that your wonderful ideals and all the things you've worked for, and then he comes in with the hammer. So let's listen to James Earl Jones with the hammer, the, the famous sections from What to the Slave is the Fourth of July that many of us have heard. And here we are again, I want to say, on the 4th of July, 2023, where I believe 50,000 black public school students are enslaved. I believe 100,000 bus, black bus riders are enslaved. I know there's a million black prisoners who are enslaved. I know there's almost 10 million family members of black prisoners who are enslaved. I know that the houseless black population is enslaved. This isn't rhetoric, folks. This is a moral challenge to us. So please let's hear it from James O. Jones. Fellow citizens, pardon me and allow me to ask why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I, or those I represent, to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and of natural justice embodied in that declaration of independence extended to us? And am I, therefore, called upon to bring our humble offering to the national altar and to confess the benefits and express devout gratitude for the blessings resulting from your independence to us. I am not included within the pale of this glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you not by me the sunlight that brought life and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me this fourth of july is yours not mine you may rejoice i must mourn to drag a man in fetters into the grand illuminated temple of liberty and call upon him to join you in joyous anthems were inhuman mockery 
and sacrilegious irony. Do you mean, citizens, to mock me by asking me to speak today? What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days of the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is a constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham. Your boasted liberty, an unholy license, your national greatness, swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless, your denunciation of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence, your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery, your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings, with all your religious parade and solemnity, are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy, a thin veil to cover up crimes that would, it, that would disgrace a nation of savages. There's not a nation of the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of these United States at this very hour. At a time like this, scorching irony not convincing argument is needed. Oh, had I the ability and could reach the nation's ear, I would today pour forth a stream, a fiery stream of biting ridicule, blasting reproach, withering sarcasm, and stern rebuke. For it is not light that is needed, but fire. It is not the gentle shower, but thunder. We need the storm the whirlwind, the earthquake, the feeling of the nation must be quickened, the conscience of the nation must be roused, the propriety of the nation must be startled, the hypocrisy of the nation must be exposed and the crimes against God and man must be proclaimed and denounced. Heartbreaking. You know, 1852 to 2023 were almost, you know, 175 years since we gave it. So I'll say on a positive note to end is send emails to voicesfromthefrontlines.com, become a regular subscriber, listen to Voices every Tuesday at 8 a.m. with Danny Martinez and Eric Mann. We're now also co-directors of the Labor Community Strategy Center, co-host of the show and co-host of pretty much everything we do. The good thing about this show is we're always doing something. We are always, if I lay out a problem, I'm already talking about a meeting of people to get to do something about it. I'm serious about some of those ideas about flooding. One university just said, I'm going to hire every black applicant go sue me. So we'll think more about it, but if you really want to get involved in making the world better and changing the world, check us out at info at the strategies.org. I'm saying goodbye and I'll let Danny and take so it. Out. I got to face the final curtain, curtain. Friends,
eyesight clear And state my case Of which I'm certain I've lived A life that's full I've traveled each And every highway And more Much more than this I did my way I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do and saw it through without exemption. I planned each chart of course, each careful footstep alone. Way, yeah, oh, much more than this. I did it my way. Yes, there were times I'm sure you knew. Ah! 